President Biden says NATO has never been more united. The lead starts right now. Biden claims the United Unified Front is the exact opposite of what Putin was betting on when he invaded Ukraine. This, as he warns, there will be a response if Russia uses chemical weapons. Plus, it is likely Putin's number one target, the capital city of Kyiv. But so far, Russia hasn't been able to break through. CNN got an exclusive interview with Kyiv's mayor. And with all eyes on Russia and Ukraine, North Korea's Kim Jong-un just tested a missile that could reach the United States. This is CNN Breaking News. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with breaking news out of Brussels, where the president is rallying world leaders at at an emergency summit discussing new ways to punish Russia for its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. President Biden insists NATO has never been stronger despite the Russian president's intentions. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine. President Biden also promised to respond if Putin were to use chemical weapons in Ukraine. And he said it's time for the G20 to show Russia the door. Let's get right to our CNN team on the ground in Brussels. Nick Robertson and Kate Caitlin Collins joins us live. Caitlin, let's start with you. This is the first time President Biden has come out and said he wants Russia out of the G20. How significant is that? It's probably the biggest news to come out of his press conference, Pamela, where President Biden said, yes, he does agree with a statement that the Australian prime minister has made, which is they don't believe Russia deserves a spot in the G20. Of course, as you know, the G20 is the summit of leading economies across the globe. It's not something that's just made up of democracies, though, we should know. China is a member of the G20. Saudi Arabia is a member of the G20. But given, of course, this bloody invasion that has happened, where obviously civilians have died and had to flee their country by thousands and millions, this is something, a stance that President Biden took today, saying he does not believe Russia should be able to participate in the G20. They have a summit every year. This year, it's in Indonesia. But President Biden said if Russia is still invited to that summit, that he think the counterbalance he thinks the counterbalance to that should be inviting Ukraine and having them come. Now, whether or not that actually happens, it remains to be seen. This wouldn't be completely foreign to Russia if they were kicked out of the G20. They were kicked out of the G8, remember, after what happened in 2014 with their illegal annexation of Crimea. It became the G7, which is the group of leaders that also met today to talk about this invasion. But certainly significant for the president of the United States to come out and say he does not believe Russia deserves to participate in that forum with those other world leaders at this point. And Nikki made it clear that the decision isn't just up to him, right? The other G20 countries have to go along with that. How likely are those other countries to go along with removing Russia from the alliance? You know, despite the warning to China today not to give economic or military support to Russia, uh, we've heard from the Chinese saying that they don't think Ukraine is a suitable topic uh, and the sort of humanitarian military situation in Ukraine is a suitable topic for the G20. So they're already signaling there um, that they they don't see an objection to having Russia there at the moment. They've been backing Russia essentially at the United Nations Security Council on key votes there. I think the Saudis are an interesting one. 
Salman, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia has a very close relationship with President Putin. The Saudis have been very slow. Um, you could almost say that they have been um, have decided not to ramp up uh, oil production uh, at the speed President Biden and other leaders would like to see them to do to make up for the shortfall of uh, oil and gas supplies that, that could uh, be a result of, uh, of any uh, cut in supplies that, that Russia inflicts on the European Union and other nations. So it's quite possible the Saudis would not stand with President Biden on that one. And I'm thinking as well here, the Argentinians, um, Alberto Fernandez, one of the recent uh, presidents to go visit President Putin in Russia just a couple of weeks before the war began. He actually got a hug from President Putin. So I I don't think we'll see the Argentinians as well um, backing that vote. But the Europeans, we can expect the British and uh, French Germans uh, to be quite strong about uh, whether or not Russia should be in or out of the G20. All right, Caitlin, I'm going to bring you back in because President Biden said that the U.S. will respond if Putin uses biological or chemical or nuclear weapons do we have any idea what that response would be? No, that is something he did not detail or really get into. He did say it would kind of depend on the severity of a chemical weapons attack. Pam, we know that's the number one concern that the White House has right now. It's certainly one of the highest ones, if not the number one, because they are concerned that Putin is preparing to do so. They've been saying that he is laying the groundwork to conduct a chemical weapons attack. And it obviously raises the question of not just how the United States would respond, but how NATO would respond to this attack. Would they view it as something that crosses that line and does make them change their stance on military involvement in Ukraine. That is something the president has said isn't going to happen. You're not going to see U.S. forces going into Ukraine. Whether or not this changes that calculus, he also didn't say today. He said it would basically be a response in accordance with the severity of that attack. And so that remains to be seen. One other thing that the leaders wrestled with behind closed doors today, Pam, is whether or not he does conduct some kind of biological attack, a radioactive attack, and that affects a NATO country nearby. Obviously, a lot of them share a border with Ukraine. Would they consider that an attack on a NATO ally? Because obviously the president has said they would defend every inch of NATO territory. That is quite specific for the president of the United States to say that. And so I think this raises so many questions that you have not seen these leaders have to grapple with in a way that we saw today in this extraordinary session where they had these very abruptly scheduled meetings of world leaders, something, Pam, that normally takes months to organize. They put it together within days, and you saw, of course, this and the concern about a chemical weapons attack was a major factor in their conversations. Yeah, you really can sense the urgency there for good reason. And also, Nick, NATO says it plans to reinforce its own chemical, biological, and nuclear defense systems. What does that entail? Well, they've talked about supplying Ukraine with uh, the wherewithal to detect uh, and mitigate uh, in terms of medical to in medical environment that would be supply uh, medicines suitable for treating chemical weapons. Um, the concern, it, do, it does exist, certainly in the European Union. I was speaking with the uh, Greek Prime Minister today, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, uh, about his concerns about the chemical, biological uh, and nuclear threat that's coming from Russia right now. He feels there's an element of saber rattling coming, but it's something that he says he cannot even begin to countenance uh, that if that was, if that if those sorts of weapons were being used. We don't have details on precisely what NATO would do, but we do understand that it would be proportionate and would be dependent on what Russia does, how it uses it, where it uses it, and the impact very likely 
if there was across the border into NATO countries. All right, Nick Robertson. Caitlin Collins reporting live in Brussels. Thank you. And let's discuss now with our panel, uh, retired Air Force General and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Philip Breedlove. I want to start with you on the heels of what we just heard there from Nick and Caitlin. President Biden promised today to respond if Russia deploys chemical, biological or nuclear weapons on Ukraine. He wouldn't say exactly what that would be. But what do you think? What should NATO's response be if that happens? Well, thanks for having me. And what we've heard, not only from the president today, but from Congress yesterday, were words like a more forceful response. And so uh, I think what we've left Mr. Putin wondering is this, that tripwire that would bring more direct involvement of NATO troops. But it wasn't described in public. So that is left for him to worry about. Susan Glasser, there is a huge focus this week on the threat of Russia using weapons of mass destruction against Ukraine or NATO. And also, like what Caitlin pointed out, the possibility if Russia were to use chemical weapons in in Ukraine and and some of it made its way over into a a NATO ally, into Poland, on the border there. Should that possibility be keeping us up at night? Look, absolutely. This isn't even an academic conversation. Remember that Russia has done this before. Russia has used uh, polonium, a radioactive substance, to carry out a hit job uh, in the United Kingdom. Did it again with a former spy, Sergei Skripal. Uh, you know, it has supported its partner and ally, the Assad regime in Syria, through use of multiple use of chemical weapons against their own people. And so, you know, this is something that is in, unfortunately, the playbook of Vladimir Putin and the Russian military. So I think it is a very real, unfortunately, possibility. And I also think we should calculate the enormous political pressure that will be brought to bear on President Biden and on European leaders if there is something like a horrific chemical weapons attack inside Ukraine already populations are clamoring to do more to support the Ukrainians. And I just I think that it would just the volume would be dialed up so intensely. It would be very hard for them not to take some sort of military action in response. Yeah, I think that that's really important context there. Gloria Borger, to bring you in, President Biden kept stressing the unity of NATO today. That Mm -hmm. clearly was a big theme for him, big through line with this trip. The Financial Times has an op-ed today from its chief colonists. And let's listen to this. It, It says, quote, America risks being seduced by its own public relations. The world's reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is far more complex than that. Since February 24th, the West has been galvanized into showing more unity than it has in years. Yet most of the world is on the sidelines waiting to see which way it goes. Not for the first time, the West is mistaking its own unity for a global consensus. So what do you think? Is, is President Biden misreading the room or the world? What's your well, reaction? First of all, first of all, it's kind of remarkable that there is even NATO unity uh, in the first place. And I think given uh, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, NATO looked at what was going on. And I think, you know, administration sources that I've spoken with uh, were kind of stunned a little bit at the alacrity of NATO saying, look, yeah, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. So NATO is unified, and that came about because of Ukraine. They're completely aware of China's issues. They're completely aware of India's issues. I mean, these are, these are state leaders. They know what's going on in the world. But this is about values, 
of our nation and their nations. And this is about history. And I think they also understand that as well. And President Biden has made it clear that he understands those other nations. For example, he said today, well, maybe maybe Indonesia uh, is not going to want, you know, Russia to be excommunicated from the from the G20. So it's not as if President Biden doesn't understand this. It's just that they are doing what they believe they have to do as leaders of nations uh, who have values. General Breedlove, to bring you back in, this week CNN reported that an official with the supreme headquarters of the allied powers of Europe said Putin's war in Ukraine has put the NATO alliance and its member nations absolutely at risk. You also have, though, President Biden say NATO is as strong as ever. How does that square? Well, clearly there there is a risk, and we've talked about it today. If one of these chemical attacks or something went across a border, now we have an issue. But but what I think what the good news is, is we are now more ready than we've ever been. We've readied some of the NRF, some of our uh, NATO response force. We have battle groups forward now we didn't have before, and we're building four more battle groups forward. And, and the United States has moved additional troops to Europe. So uh, there is risk, but the good news is we are getting ready for that risk. Susan, quickly, President Biden got a little testy today when he was asked about why sanctions haven't been a deterrent. Um, What did you make of of his answer to that and the pushback he gave saying that was never the intent? Look, when you impose sanctions after the war has already begun, uh, you know, I do think there's an enormous effort to... um, to go ahead and uh, essentially try to shut the Russian economy down, the military industrial complex, but that's gonna take time. Uh, That may have an impact on the war, but not a short term impact. Uh, You know, the tragedy is that the war began. There were sanctions that could have been uh, ratcheted up over the years since 2014. But a final point to remind you that we had a president of the United States before Joe Biden, who contemplated lifting sanctions at one point, who wanted Russia uh, not only to be part of the G20, but to rejoin the G7 as recently as the summer of 2020. He was proposing that. So obviously uh, there was a lot of steps along the way to this tragedy unfolding. What did you think of that moment, Gloria, when he got a little touchy there? (laughs) Well, we've seen uh, Joe Biden get touchy uh, before. And I think, look, this has been a political issue. When do you invoke sanctions and when do they start to work and how long should they last? And, you know, there were there were some saying you should have done it sooner and some saying you did it at the right time. And he clearly is thinking and believing, as do other NATO leaders, that they did it at the right time. And as we like to say in politics, only time will tell. And so he is a little touchy about it because people are saying, well, if you had done that sooner, perhaps Russia wouldn't have behaved the way it did. And that is not his playbook. All right. Thank you all so much. Well, coming up, an exclusive interview with the man in charge of running Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital that is believed to be Putin's top target. Plus, how Ukraine is fighting back in the southern part of the country where Russian warships docked in one port. Today marks one month into Vladimir Putin's deadly, unprovoked invasion. And as Russian forces apply pressure, Ukrainians are fighting back, pushing Putin's army more than 30 miles away from the capital city, according to a U.S. defense official. 
And then there's this dramatic image, images like this, backing up the Ukrainian Navy's claim it destroyed a Russian ship loaded with military equipment. We're going to take you live to that region ahead, but first, a CNN exclusive. CNN's Fred Plykin caught up with the mayor of Ukraine's capital city and his celebrity brother. The two had a specific request of President Biden and NATO allies, and they also had choice words for Vladimir Putin and his war that the U.N. now estimates has killed more than 1,000 civilians. Watch. As Vladimir Putin continues his assault on Ukraine, the U.S. believes taking the capital, Kiev, remains Russia's main goal. But the city's mayor, former world boxing champ Vitaly Klitschko, vows Putin's troops will not enter this town. We met the mayor and his brother Vladimir Klitschko, himself a former boxing champion, in a secret location in Kiev. Do you think that you have what it takes to fend them off completely and that this city will not be taken by Russia? It's our hometown. We, fight. we never go to the knee. We don't want to be slaves. We don't want back to USSR to live in, in dictator, to live in authoritarianism. We see our country as modern European democratic country. The Klitschkos are on the move 24-7, visiting residential areas shelled by the Russian army, sometimes getting emotional when seeing the aftermath of Russian attacks. Putin says he's only targeting military targets. Bullshit. Sorry. Where's military target? Comforting those affected by the war and overseeing the effort to train those looking to confront Russian forces. You've really stepped up and really have organized the defense of the city. How, how did you manage to do that, learn that so quickly, learning on the fly? We don't need to organize. I meet people in blog posts with very peaceful profession. Artist, musician, doctors. Never ever have idea to take the uniform and take the weapons in the hand. But right now, they in the street and ready to fight. A few days ago, the apartment is building, destroyed from racket. One man, around 60 years old, coming to me and asked, what I have to do? What I have to do right now? I give him proposal to evacuate him to my safety zone, to west of Ukraine. He told Mr. Klitschko, my mayor, I don't want to leave from my hometown. Please give me weapons. I am ready to defend my family, my lovely Kiev. Instead the panic, instead the um, instead uh, demoralization, the people motivate so much and have spirit to defend our future. But they're up against a strong and better equipped foe. As President Biden visits Europe to meet NATO allies, the Klitschko's messages get tougher on Putin. What are your demands? What do you guys need to continue this fight? Our will is strong and it's better and stronger than any army and any weapon. But we definitely need to close our sky. Our civilians and our cities are getting destroyed. And it's continuing while we're giving this interview and speaking about it. The fights are still going on. We need supply of the defensive weapons. 
and you guys just need to stop any economical relationship with Russia. This way, we will isolate him, make him weaker, and just show that international law cannot be broken. Oil. Obviously, the world needs oil and gas, but it's better to pay higher price than to pay with lives for that oil. And so you guys obviously, or you want a, a no-fly zone, I, I gather, and aircraft, anti-aircraft systems and the like to, to beat the Russians in the skies. That's one of the most important things, right? If you supply us with defensive weapons, we're gonna close the skies on our own. We have enough men and women that are gonna stand for the country and will defend it as, as strong as much as possible and we're going to close the sky on our own. We just need the defensive equipment for that. Vitaly Klitschko knows Joe Biden well. The two met both in Washington, D.C. and in Kiev when Biden was vice president and the U.S. frontman for Ukraine policy in the Obama administration. What's your message to Joe Biden as he comes to Europe? Stay with Ukraine. Thank you very much for support. Support Ukraine with our friends. We are my stronger. It's our future. It's our freedom. We're ready to fight for that, but we need support for whole democratic world. The Klitschkos are international celebrities with massive fan bases in both the U.S. and in Europe. And yet they say for them there is no other place they want to be than in Kiev, despite the dangers. You're some of the prime targets for the Russians, you know. They're out to get you. Um, why do you do it? What motivates you? It's our homeland. It's our parents here, we've grown up, it's our country, it's our home. And the simple answer, we have to be here. Do you, do you know this uh, expression of roots? Mm. Our roots are here. Our father, that was one of the Chernobyl survivors, and uh, he was one of the liquidators that buried in, in Kyiv, and he's Ukrainian as it could be. Our relatives, our friends, every single street reminds us on some memories in life. And that's something that gives you so much strength because the truth is on our side. This is pretty much reminds me like in a fairy tale, the fight between the good and the evil. So there you hear it very clear, the two Klitschko brothers vowing to stay in the fight and that they aren't going anywhere. And, you know, one of the senses or, or the sense that we got here is the two are extremely motivated and certainly also bolstered by the fact that right now the Ukrainian military does seem to be making some gains, especially around here, around the Kiev area. In fact, as I'm speaking to you right now, Pamela, we are once again hearing what, what appears to be outgoing artillery as that battle continues to go on. And, of course, Ukrainian forces have been saying that at least in some areas around here, they have managed to push the Russians back, and they vow to continue to do that. Pamela. Brad Plykin, what an interview that was. Thank you for bringing that to us. And now we want to go to Ukraine's southeast region for what may be a small victory for the Ukrainian military. Not only does the Ukraine Navy claim to have destroyed a major Russian warship, but it also took out two other Russian vessels. CNN's Ivan Watson is in that region just north of the Ukrainian port. Hi, Ivan. So Russia once touted this as the first ship docked at that port. Now this attack, how crippling might this be to Russian naval resources? 
Well, it, it's certainly got to be an embarrassing setback. Uh, and we do know because the port of Berdyansk is occupied by Russian forces. There's an awful lot of social media video that has come out, long, unedited, <coughs> unedited sequences that show just this terrible fire burning in the port, uh, consuming the bow of a large Russian warship, and then seeing two other, at least two other warships, uh, moving as quickly as they can to try to leave uh, the port that they were tied up against right next to this ship. And those ships themselves were burning as well. And part of what is so dramatic about this is just a couple of days ago, Russian state television, several channels, had different reporters on the bow of this Russian warship called the Orsk, which is kind of a marine cargo ship. It can bring in, according to one of those reporters, dozens of tanks, around 20 tanks or 40 armored personnel carriers. Uh, they may have actually uh, alerted the Ukrainians to the location of this warship, which was then pummeled by some kind of Ukrainian weapon uh, with catastrophic Results. Uh, a Ukrainian official in charge of the, the, the Customs Border Service kind of made a joke about this on Facebook, saying that, hey, that Russian state TV reporter is uh, the best Russian propagandist for us, his favorite. Mm. Back to you. And we've seen some of the worst of this invasion there in Ukraine's southeast region. Parts of Mariupol just south of you were reduced to rubble. We've seen those images coming in. Yet so many people tried to stay. Is there still an organized effort to get people out? If they want to leave? There are still efforts and they're halting. There are efforts to try to get buses to transport people out. And those have been stopped on various days. The Ukrainian government accusing the Russian military of, of kidnapping the emergency workers uh, who were trying to take those buses to Mariupol. Meanwhile, the defenders inside, uh, they are facing a very dire situation. Uh, they are surrounded by far more Russian troops than they have. They concede that, but they say they are going to fight. Uh, take a listen. It's uh, urban combat. So, yeah, that's the street to street, building to building. The enemy trying to, uh, enemy trying to block us in the city blocks. Uh, we're pushing them back. Uh, the enemy is... The enemy have a very, very serious casualties. We will basically, we, we're not counting them anymore. We need uh, the heavy anti-air systems first. We need aircraft second. We need artillery pieces and we need uh, anti-tank guided missiles. The fact of the matter, this is a modern day siege uh, there. Uh, the battleground is a city or what's left of it. And we just don't know how many civilians are trapped in the middle of this terrible battle? Pamela. All right, Ivan Watson, keep up the excellent reporting there. Thank you. Coming up, while the world is focused on Ukraine, the North Koreans just did, tested something that they have not tried since 2017. In our world lead, North Korea's most powerful missile test in almost five years. That's what officials are calling the latest launch of what is believed to be an intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missile. Analysts say the test could be the longest-range missile yet fired by North Korea. CNN's Will Ripley joins us live from Taiwan with more on this. Will, we've seen a recent increase in missile tests by North Korea, but officials say this one could be the most significant. Tell us why. 
Some analysts, Pam, have called this a monster missile. We got our first look at it, actually, back in October at North Korea's military parade. This thing is huge. Some analysts believe it could actually be capable of carrying multiple warheads at the same time. Nuclear-tipped warheads, by the way. Uh, it is the largest missile in North Korea's arsenal that we know of. It could reach all of North America. In fact, it could travel theoretically up to 15,000 kilometers, which would mean that it could target 95% of the world's population. But yeah, any city in the mainland U.S. potentially in the striking range of this. New York, Washington, Los Angeles. And the North Koreans have tested at a time that there is a lot going on around the world, Pam. And, and, and so therefore, this major, major launch, while it is drawing condemnation, it is not getting the kind of response that you might typically see from a North Korean provocation like this. Right, because the launch is coming as President Biden and other world leaders are gathering for a series of meetings in Brussels. How are they reacting to this latest provocation from Kim Jong-un? You know, President Biden met earlier today with the Japanese prime minister who said that this is reckless, unacceptable. And he, of course, has good reason uh, because it landed about, you know, right off the waters of Japan. Japan is inside Japan's exclusive economic zone. It was just off the shoreline of Hokkaido where this thing went down. It, it flew so high. You're talking about 38 a hundred miles up and then back down just to prove that it's it has this really long distance. It, 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 it's really frightening for a lot of people, certainly for the South Koreans uh, and their outgoing president, Moon Jae-in. He's leaving office in May. He's dedicated his political career to trying to make peace with North Korea. And now just, you know, weeks before he leaves office, they have this major launch. South Korea, for the first time in almost five years, Pam, they launched missiles in response to this. So it's a really disturbing trend for those who wanted to see things quieting down on the Korean Peninsula. It is. Very big deal. Will Ripley in Taiwan, thank you. Coming up, desperate journeys. What the refugee situation looks like across Ukraine's borders one month after Putin's invasion. As President Biden wraps up a full day of emergency meetings with allies, tomorrow he'll head to Poland. And Biden revealed part of his plans with reporters today. Those who have made it across the border, I plan on attempting to see those folks, as well as I hope I'm going to be able to see. I guess I'm not supposed to say where I'm going, am I? But anyway, I hope I get to see a, a lot of people. <laughs> Oops. All jokes aside, Poland has taken most of the 3.6 million refugees who have made it out of Ukraine. CNN's Melissa Bell is just across the border in Poland, where many of these refugees have made their way. And Melissa Biden says the U.S. will welcome 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. Are there early plans on how that might work? Uh, we do have an idea, Pamela, of how the scheme would work. It is that humanitarian parole that was used for the Afghan refugees fleeing after uh, the U.S. Uh, withdrawal in August of last year. So we have an idea of the way the scheme will work. We understand that what's going to happen is that people are going to be given priority. So, for instance, those considered most, first of all, who have family in the United States will be given priority. Then those communities considered most vulnerable, so LGBTQ, journalists, dissidents, those fleeing who have reason to have greatest concern for their safety. But I'd just like to give you an idea of what's happening here at Medica Crossing, where day and night, Pamela, uh, they continue to arrive 
uh, here, uh, the women and children, and it is women and children uh, who arrive uh, day and night, 90% of these refugees are women and children since the fighting age men have stayed behind. They're given uh, a hot drink uh, and further down this line will be taken uh, to somewhere where they can uh, be given a night's sleep. And really, it never ceases to amaze us uh, the amounts of people that continue to cross this border. And again, something really troubling about seeing uh, all these women and these young children uh, crossing uh, on their own. But I think it's important to stress that however generous that American scheme is to try and get uh, these refugees uh, to the United States and give them the, uh, po the possibility of settling there, you're unlikely to see many of them taking that up, simply because uh, these refugees have left uh, their husbands, fathers on the other side of the border. Fighting edge men are not allowed to cross that border. And so what that means is that these women and children are really looking for temporary shelter to get back to a country that they really hope uh, they're going to get back to as soon as they can, Pamela. Yeah, understandable. They're holding out that hope. And Melissa Biden mentioned $2 billion in military aid already helping Ukraine and another $1 billion for humanitarian efforts on the way. Have you seen evidence of exactly what that money pays for? Uh, well, we know that for a start, for the last few months, the United States, like some of its NATO allies, including the United Kingdom, has already been getting weaponry uh, over to Ukraine. Now, to begin with, those kinds of weapons that were being passed, I'm just going to show you, if I can, uh, through uh, land routes, land arteries, like the road crossing that is here just next to where I'm standing, uh, the kinds of weapons that were being sent uh, were really uh, more for the kind of guerrilla defensive warfare that they were expecting. Now, across those land arteries and the air base that's not very far from here, what we understand is that uh, they're going to be trying to send the kind of weapons that Ukrainians say they now need. And that is much more the kind of offensive weapons uh, that they're looking for. We know they're running out of munitions. We know that they're going to be wanting uh, more anti-tank weaponry that has proven so efficient so far. Now, across those same arteries, what's been happening is that it is all the humanitarian aid that's been heading as well into Ukraine uh, and that so much of the country is depending on. The UN managed to get its first uh, truckloads, its first convoy of humanitarian aid up to the besieged town of Sumi just over the weekend, the first time it had done so. It is some three million people inside the country that the World Food Programme is now trying to get access to, Pamela. Melissa Bell, right there on the border, um, Poland, Ukraine. Thank you. Well, how the past might signal a warning for the present. Moments ago, Russian intelligence officers were indicted for hacking into energy systems around the globe. What it tells us about the current cyber threats to the U.S.? Breaking news in the tech lead, the Justice Department says four Russians have just been indicted, accused of hacking energy companies dating back to 2012. Three of the four Russians are intelligence officers. I want to bring in CNN's Alex Markhard. And look, Alex, while these reported attempts, hacks, attempted hacks go back years, it does give us a window into what the Russians are capable of. It reflects their intent. It reflects what they've done in the past and what they may do in the future. So three of these hackers uh, that have been indicted by the Department of Justice are from uh, Russia's FSB, which is their internal security service, which is like our FBI. And they are accused of hacking into hundreds of energy companies around the world, uh, including some here in the United States between 2012 and 2018. The fourth uh, person was someone working for the Russian Ministry of Defense, a research institute. They uh, were helping with a hack in, in Saudi Arabia. So what this does is really raise the fears of what could happen now, because it's clear that they have targeted critical infrastructure in the past. They know that. And now we're getting these extremely stark warnings from the Biden administration, from the very top, from President Biden himself, uh, who said that the magnitude of Russia's cyber capacity is 
fairly consequential, and it's coming. The president's saying that Russian cyber attacks are coming. Now, there's a difference when it comes to hacking in terms of espionage, uh, like the Solar Winds hack, where we saw Russians going after uh, government systems to spy. And then there are hacks that are designed to be destructive. And what the FBI has warned is that they've seen what's called scanning, where these hackers scan for vulnerabilities. This warning came out last week that they were scanning uh, at least five U.S. energy companies. Uh, And what Jen Easterly has said, and she's the head of the, the U.S. cyber agency, CISA, is that the, the activity that, that we have seen so far is not in the espionage category. It's what she says, uh, in, uh, it looks like disruptive and destructive activity that could be coming soon. Yeah, Jen Easterly, you mentioned I'm going to be doing an exclusive sit-down interview with her tomorrow to talk about the cyber threat and the concern here domestically, and part of that will be airing on this show tomorrow. You mentioned this employee um, of the, the Russian Ministry of Defense. It's charged with Hacking a petrochemical plant in Saudi Arabia, this raises concerns because it targets safety systems at power plants. Right. right. So, so that I mean, that, that's the last thing you want to hear is that the safety systems at some of these most vulnerable, most dangerous places uh, could be at risk. So this one uh, Russian uh, employee of the Ministry of Defense helping other hackers get into this petrochemical uh, plant in Saudi Arabia. But what they're afraid of um, is that there were also attempts for a similar facility here in the United States uh, where the security systems were at risk. And it just goes to show that these Russian hackers are going after some of the most vulnerable uh, facilities, not just in the United States, but around the world. All right, Alex Markhard, thank you so much. We'll be right back. In our money lead, long but enthusiastic gas lines around Chicago as a businessman offered up to $50,000 worth of free gas to the first 400 cars at each of 48 locations in the city and suburbs. The businessman, Willie Wilson, has run for Chicago mayor before, and there just happens to be an election for that office again next year. He certainly generated gallons of publicity by donating a million dollars worth of gas to help people deal with with surging prices. He paid for a similar giveaway of $200,000 worth of gas last week. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room in Brussels. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required. 